Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of I Pledge Allegiance. This week, I have on Rune, the founder of MakerDAO. Rune is one of the OGs in the entire crypto space. Over the past few years, we've seen DAI launch, transition to multi-collateral DAI, go through a lot of iterations and evolutions. And you look at it today, it's the biggest decentralized stablecoin by orders of magnitude. MakerDAO is especially interesting as it relates to governance. You go back to 2019, 2020, you're probably really the only protocol that had weekly on-chain governance calls and votes. The transition to multi-collateral DAI, it was all done via governance. Black Friday in 2020, again, very interesting governance discussion. And over the past few months, now in 2022, there's been a, an enormous amount of governance discussion and, and conflict, frankly. So really excited to bring Rune on because he probably has more context and understanding of all of this than anyone else. And he will be able to really break down into simple English what is going on. So without further ado, welcome Rune. Thanks for having me on. So I guess to kick things off, can you give a quick summary of just like your involvement with MakerDAO and more importantly, why you left MakerDAO, I believe in 2021? Yeah, I've actually been working on Maker since I guess technically late 2014. But you know, the project sort of really took off with me and a group of co-founders in 2015 and this sort of early community. And I mean, and yeah, it's one of the oldest projects in the space, right? And actually throughout the years, I mean, there's really been this cycle of the purpose of the project has always been to create a real DAO, right? A real autonomous project that can run itself. And so I've actually left the project multiple times. And this sort of the same thing has, has kept happening, which is, you know, me and also others believe, okay, it's done now. You know, we finished the thing. It's it's decentralized. It's autonomous. It will run itself from here. And then something starts going wrong. And basically I have to sort of, you know, I feel compelled to come back in to basically, you know, try to sort of fix or save my my project, right? Because I'm so emotionally attached to it, having worked on it for so long. And the alternative is to sort of accept, okay, it's not really, it's not really able to survive on its own. And the most latest sort of iteration of this cycle is, I mean, it's also the most consequential, right? Because now Maker is suddenly a huge project. It's not like a small hobby experiment any longer. Rather, it's like one of the really fundamental pieces of infrastructure in all of crypto. But that, I mean, that only, you know, further emphasizes the importance of making sure the thing will actually work as advertised, right? And we'll be able to survive. You know, the basic sequence of events is that the foundation was created to sort of like properly launch and sort of bootstrap the technology itself of the Maker Protocol. And the Maker Foundation did that from 2017. I'm actually not even sure exactly when. I mean, it's a long time ago, right? But it was sometime 2017, something like, like that. And well, it started the process of dissolving in 2021. And that was because the technology was completely done. And it was then replaced by the decentralized workforce, which was sort of run and governed by the community. Unfortunately, it turns out that it's not as simple as just building the tech and then coming up with a simple concept for a decentralized workforce. And then it will just run itself. Or rather than what we're now running into is sort of the next dimension of challenges, which is not just the dimension of getting a DAO up and running technically, 
and getting it secure technically, but basically the same thing, getting a governance dynamic of and running and secure and able to really survive in the long run autonomously. Really great explanation and context. So just if we go back to 2021 and the intention again is to transition the protocol to a DAO, like what was the thinking behind it and how did you guys go about designing a structure? As I recall, there was a blog post in 2021, the foundation is, the Maker Foundation is closing and returning all funds to the community treasury. And this was when the core unit model was born and you had a bunch of autonomous core units, like who came up with that? What was the process like to creating these structures? So the core unit structure was actually sort of the framework, the idea that you would have these individual teams essentially that would each have their own independent budget. I mean, that actually came out of the, the community, sort of a community working group that came up with that and proposed that in response to the foundation having announced in advance that, look, the foundation will have to eventually dissolve. Because that was, that was how the, the foundation was set up from the start, right? So the foundation was able to, to bootstrap the protocol, but ultimately it operated with a lot of regulatory risk, essentially. And it, it had this challenge of, you know, essentially being like a core team the protocol right so we really wanted to make sure that that was not something that i guess you know you don't want that to kind of ossify and a system like maker you know requiring a core team permanently because that then completely defeats the the purpose of having to be unbiased and having to be decentralized right so it actually i mean it seemed like the perfect starting point right that then you have this you know sort of emergent model coming out of the community that's very simple it's very dynamic that's very flexible and was actually being used actively, right? So by the time the foundation started dissolving, at that point in time, the core units were already up and running. So it wasn't that we, the foundations are shut down and then there was this like interim chaotic period where nothing was done and then the core units got up and running. But rather it was like the core units sort of took over and made the foundation obsolete. So um, it, that by itself is a massive achievement, right? Because it really proved that you can really replace that and, and it doesn't die when that happens, right? So, it, I mean, it did really achieve like something that was stable and decentralized in the short run and was able to properly run and operate the protocol. You guys definitely were leaders in this regard. MakerDAO was one of the first protocols to have completely treasury and DAO funded core units or, or sub DAOs is, is whatever you want to call them. I think there's a lot of teams going through this right now. They have one founding team for regulatory reasons or other reasons, which there, there are valid ones. They're now expanding the number of people and, and groups that can contribute through governance and spinning up new working groups. Like This is a bit of a loaded question, but do you think the core unit model thus far has worked? Would you recommend it to other protocol operators or contributors as a model for them to copy? I mean, the problem in a sense with looking at it that way is that, and I mean, this is what I've come to basically realize about DAOs and crypto and DeFi more generally, that basically you cannot look at something like the core units in isolation, for instance, and then say, is it a good model or not? Basically, if you try to build it in isolation and build some kind of basic primitive, I mean, and the, the funny thing is, this is the instinct of people in crypto and DeFi, right? It's like, let's build some primitive and then it's like, make it permissionless, right? And like free and open. And then, you know, kind of like the magic of the free market or 
kind of the, you know, the innovative spirit of our community will figure it out and take it from there, right? And basically what I've come to realize is that that's exactly the thing that never works. It has a 100% failure rate, essentially, right? Because and any sort of cynical person, especially outside of crypto, would also just be like, what, <laughs> you know? You think you can just have some, you know, random community run something like that, like a bunch of budgets or a business strategy or something like that, right? And yeah, like it just, the problem is that like you need to look much broader beyond just the basic mechanism for like, this is how you take money out and send it somewhere, right? Or this is how you decide where the money goes. You know, you also need to figure out why you decide for the money to go somewhere, right? And how you sort of measure the results and how you prioritize and what do you do when there are multiple dependencies of something and and so on and so on. And in many ways, it all then leads back to like the ultimate sort of vision of like, what is even the purpose of the project? And I, I mean, one thing that's really interesting to sort of then like just to bring up in this context, right, is that I guess the number one one easy way to understand the insane challenge it is to try to make a DAO and a decentralized workforce actually function, right, is the what's called the iron law of bureaucracy, right, which is this basically true heuristic that if you just have basically, uh, I mean, a bureaucracy, right, I mean, it's, it's, I guess it's used to talk about government bureaucracies probably, right, but then you'll have an organization and it'll be set up with some kind of original purpose, but over time, its internal dynamic will ensure that eventually its purpose becomes its own survival. And the reason for that is because the, the, like the social dynamics internally will kind of elevate those who look out for the organization rather than something external to the organization. That's immediately kind of the problem you run into, right? So anyway, so that's a, like, that's a long-winded way of saying that it doesn't matter, you know, whether you have core units or whether you have whatever, you have grants or what it like, because it's not about some specific individual piece. It's about what's the overall holistic, I guess I would call it equilibrium, essentially, that ensures that what's actually used for it doesn't change over time and moves away from what you originally intended it to be used for. Right. Okay. No, that totally makes sense. And if I were to repeat back what you're saying, it's like, it's like someone asking, is the LLC a, a good structure? Or should all organizations use the LLC? Well, it's like sometimes yes, sometimes no. It, it completely depends on who's running it, what decisions you make, how you think and strategize and execute. The same is different with any decentralized protocol and governance. There's no one size fits all. It's completely dependent on whether the protocol can execute on in overarching long-term vision and, and that could be anything but that's really the main question yeah and i think also i mean maybe a more interesting way to to talk about it is to basically say that i think the vast majority of people that think that they can make a DAO work or make a decentralized workforce work and can actually design an equilibrium like this that doesn't break over time most of it will just fail like it's not and what's funny is that there's so many analogies in kind of how basically the, the social layer and the governance layer and the political layer, how that works to how the technical layer works. Because what you end up, where you end up sort of arriving is this is just such an incredibly inefficient and difficult form of organization with so many challenges that it's kind of like the blockchain itself. That like you don't want to, you know, use that unless you absolutely have to. 
yet currently it's kind of, I mean, just like with sort of the early, but with Bitcoin or but with blockchain days, right? You have so many DAOs and so many decentralized organizations all over the place. But the reality is probably, you know, most of those should really just be LLCs, right? And actually that also really touches on the big challenge of all of this, which is that the whole point of a DAO is that it doesn't have a legal structure, right? It doesn't have a legal entity. And that's already immediately when you think about that, you start to sort of touch on the, the major issues, which is, you know, well, if there's no legal entity, if there's no legal relationships, that means there's no fiduciary duty. There is no, you know, minority protection. There's no, not even really a concept of corruption or embezzlement or something like that, right? That's actually, like in a DAO, that's like, you could almost say that in a DAO, corruption is encouraged because there really is no consequence for doing it, right? That's like the definition of a DAO is that just like with smart contracts, if you can do it, then you can do it, right? And that, like, once you realize that this is the reality of something that's an actual DAO, that's actually decentralized versus something that's, you know, maybe more like pretending to be a DAO, but it really is just the legal, it's like a general partnership or something like that. Then you start to really understand the challenge and the kind of, you know, the fact that you, one thing is getting it to work today and tomorrow and in a month, but making something of that survive for years and even permanently, which is, I guess, the holy grail, that really is a completely unique challenge. Just double clicking on something you said on the last sentence, are there any truly decentralized DAOs that you think are, are working or even interesting? I guess it's a difficult question. I would say that Maker is probably the best example of like a DeFi, like I would guess. So the thing is there's like different levels of complexity and something like Maker and most other DeFi projects, they're like at the highest level of complexity. Then you have stuff that's like much lower complexity. I mean, you could even say like Bitcoin is a DAO or something or Ethereum is a DAO, right? And that's definitely working to a much greater extent. And that's exciting because it's so much less complex. And that comes back to what I was talking about earlier, right? That the challenge is when you have this sort of open-ended decision and, and sort of open-ended responsibility that you hand over to a community of sort of random anonymous people, right? That's a big problem. When you have something that's much more locked down and, and clear and, and kind of predefined, then the decentralization becomes more realistic. Makes total sense. So going, going back to 21 and going back to the main, main discussion, the MakerDAO Foundation dissolved, funds were transferred back to the DAO, these core units spun up and basically took over the protocol and, and are governing it and, and upgrading it. And you basically took a step back. Like, what did you do during this interim? Did you take a hiatus? Did you like go on vacation? Was it just like taking a rest? Like, what did you do? And, and more what inspired you to, like, what were you feeling going into 2022 and seeing Maker evolve without you? Yeah, so, I mean, like I said, it's something that sort of happened in the past as well, right? So I've actually done multiple of these sort of stepping back. And yeah, I mean, like from the very beginning, it's always been my dream basically to be able to just leave the project and let it work by itself and sort of grow and, and succeed, right? In fact, I many, you could say, I only, like one of the things that got me started on in the first place was this like foolish idea that all I had to do was write the white paper. And I was like, oh, that's the magic of, of DAOs. You just write the white paper, you put it out there and then the free market sort of assembles the actual thing for you. If you just put the ideas out there, which, you know, is definitely not the case, right? It's pretty much the exact opposite. That's the case. But so that's always been my, um, for a very long time, right? That was something I really look forward to. 
And yeah, what I did is I actually started another company in the meantime. So I'm kind of doing two things right now, but kind of as I left, right. Or as I, I mean, as I stopped working for the foundation, but was still relatively active in the community. And actually once I left the foundation, then I was able to sort of be a lot more active in the community because as I worked in the foundation, I couldn't really participate in the same way. So, so then immediately what I I did was I made this massive proposal called the case for clean money, which actually was, I mean, in many ways that was actually then the precursor to the end game plan because it, it identified that it's very difficult to coordinate in a decentralized environment. So one of the things you need is this kind of unifying vision, right? That actually isn't just let's get rich because the problem is if the vision is just let's get rich, let's, make a token go up or something that doesn't at all protect you against the, the problem of, well, basically that, you know, things like corruption isn't actually wrong in a DAO in a sense. Right. And the whole challenge is distribution of resources and budgeting and so on. So I thought the fact, you know, the, the immense existential crisis of climate change was the perfect fit to sort of give makers some kind of purpose and give the people involved a reason to not just descend into politics basically, but rather, work together to actually execute so execute on the DAO, right? And and like make the DAO reality so that it could bring the protocol to its full potential. And this really came in, in you know in the sort of in the like following this big pioneering effort that we had already done in, in the maker community and the foundation into real assets, right? And then you could you could really come up with this some kind of like a kind of like a real purpose, right? Of saying, look, DeFi has a reason to exist and be relevant in the real world because it's a better way to allocate capital, right? We can actually have financial infrastructure that is rational about what kind of externalities it creates, right? So instead of just dumping money into fossil fuels and sort of chasing the whatever provides the best yield in the short term, it can be sort of more long-term oriented and look into how to make sustainable investments, right? That don't create negative externalities. And that's actually the most rational way to do something like a currency. I mean, especially if you're, if you're trying to make a, a highly scalable world currency, because in the end, the environment itself is the basis for the stability of, you know, the economy and the financial system and any currency that exists, right? So it's sort of... I mean, that's kind of a contradiction in how modern capitalism works, right? And trying to deal with those inherent contradictions is what crypto is all about. So that was this sort of big vision I basically came up with that was called clean money. And I, I mean, and, and basically my thinking was, okay, all I need to do is, and this is kind of, in hindsight, it's naive, and it's exactly the same thing as all I need to do is write the white paper, right? I basically present this vision and that will provide some kind of North Star for the community to then collaborate and execute and focus on getting things done rather than having political struggles and, and fighting for resources internally, right? So then with that, I kind of stepped away and, and basically expected the maker governance process and the core units and the community and the forum and so on to sort of figure things out from there. On the clean money side, if I were to simplify it, the core idea really is a global scalable currency needs to be backed by assets that are linked to things that will be around forever and sustainable in any definition. And the belief is that that will be tied to cleaner sources of, of energy because currency is linked to energy production in many different ways. 
And that's the core concept. Yeah, you could look at something like the US dollar. And if you sort of extrapolate on how the US dollar functions over time, it will kill itself, right? It will destroy the American economy and will become worthless. So it's like in the pursuit of stability, people put their money into US dollars. But what they don't realize is that very action of trying to get stability by putting the money into the US dollars erodes their stability because it breaks down the environment and eventually that's going to destroy well, the environment, the economy, financial system, everything, right? Unless you sort of correct course. And so that's that's why the, the only way to create a stable currency is to have a, a stable environment to create it in. And then naturally you have to deal with the massive, disastrous climate crisis. But there's, of course, other elements to it. I mean, there's actually also, I mean, there's the element of like this, then having a purpose like that helps align a DAO. And, and it creates something, what I call a good meta like it creates some kind of context for a DAO to, to exist and to work together beyond just like sort of the selfish pursuit of trying to make the number go out, right? Trying to extract value, but rather some kind of shared purpose. And then there's even, you could even say like a political or a sort of global political or regulatory component to it, right? Which is that you really want to show your good side to the real world, to the government and to the regulators so that they can understand that crypto isn't just some scam or Ponzi scheme or, you know, like terror that crashes to zero and makes people commit suicide or proof of work mining that uses as much electricity as Switzerland and all these like bad things, right? But you need, you need to also give the real world examples of why they should care about crypto and why they should not vote for the guy that's going to ban it. Because otherwise, eventually, it will probably just get banned, right? You know, all these things are, are linked together, essentially. Very valid, I think. Yeah, narratives are super important, and and creating good ones that appeal to the mass market is important for the long term growth and and survivability of of many of these protocols. And what was the result of your post? Like, what did people think? Was it executed on any way? Like, looking back on the clean money initiative specifically, how do you think it's gone? Yeah, so initially there was very positive reaction. I think externally a lot of people made fun of it, right? And thought it was like, like there's this sort of traditional logic that if you want to make money, you've got to be evil, right? So then trying to create positive externalities, you're not going to make money doing that. You're going to lose money. And that's like a, that's against the crypto ethos for many people because a lot of people are simply in crypto to make money, right? And I, I mean, I think it's completely, just if you look at something like the regulatory dimension, right? That if you're giving government's reasons not to shut you down, you're going to make more money than if you give them a bunch of reasons to shut you down and then you get shut down, right? So there's actually a sort of a confluence of doing good and being well off in that sense. But yeah, so there's lots of support internally in the, in the May community, but actually it's kind of out of that in many ways that I really realized that I couldn't just step away from the project or have to come back and kind of like, I mean, once and for all, basically finish what I started with the end game plan. And the best way to think about it is basically, yeah, like people agreed to do it and thought it was great. It sounds good and so on. But then basically, I mean, it didn't actually, just because there was this like initial alignment of a vision around a vision, basically it, it didn't stick around. And like immediately people forgot about it and they got distracted by like the next drama and the next thing. But also it just turned out that the DAO was just completely incapable and sort of paralyzed from really sort of 
getting most things done is just an incredible challenge, right? So, so even now there's been, I mean, even after sort of this initial commitment and approval of trying to you know, onboard clean assets and clean energy or, and just something that sort of fits into the clean money narrative, there's really been no real progress on that because in general, it turns out that there's a lot, there are much more fundamental challenges to overcome first, right? Because the, the entire sort of machinery of the decentralized workforce, which is what's supposed to bring something like this to life, you can't just assume something like that is going to work, right? In practice, if you just kind of leave it be and don't really hold it accountable, what just happens is you just end up with a giant budget, basically, and, and no clear sense of what what exactly is, is being being done, right? And that really doesn't mean that the workforce that ended up emerging out of the coordinates isn't a bunch of very talented people. Like it's actually, it's I think it's kind of remarkably the opposite. And I often talk about how if it wasn't for the quality of the workforce in Maker, the situation would be so much worse. Like it's almost like the talent of the people that work on Maker and kind of like their drive and their commitment almost like masks some of this incredible challenge and sort of incredible what's really lacking in the structure doesn't even really show yet because you don't have the level of like corruption, for instance, that you would expect in the longer term, right? But we still very much see kind of where, I mean, we still saw exactly what are the, the sort of the beginning of the slippery slope towards all these like destructive dynamics that basically make a decentralized workforce such an incredible challenge. Definitely agree, I think, with your broader point that if anyone drops an idea into a community, whether it's a forum post or a tweet, expecting others to carry it through and execute on it completely is very, very difficult, especially for protocols that are large and and have a lot of baggage, frankly. So I think that part totally makes sense. So You've talked a lot about the challenges of decentralizing Maker and having tens, hundreds of contributors on the forums chiming in and and how that results in in poor decision-making. Can you speak to any tangible or specific things that you saw that inspired you to play a more active role formally with the end game plan? Like were there specific proposals or specific like discussions or, or maybe even specific core units that you disagreed with or, or, or had feedback on that where you saw and you were like, okay, like I need to, to create something real and, and publish it. Curious if, if there was anything specific. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess there's really, there's like a number of what I basically call existential threats, right? So that I guess the most important one is voter apathy that people just don't vote. And I think this is probably something that's the case in all DAOs, but actually maker for some reason is particularly prevalent. And later, I've sort of figured out, I mean, I have a, I sort of have a way to explain why, why it is particularly bad in Maker, for instance, compared to some other projects. But at the time, it's just like, it was clearly sort of an existential risk because if you don't have enough people voting, then you can suffer governance tax, right? But what's kind of more difficult and, and really this kind of like, you just know this is going to be a real challenge, right? It's like the budgeting of the core units and the, the sort of the input costs and then the output. And then the fact that sometimes you actually get, this is a thing in all organizations. And also it's, I had the experience of having built legal companies from the, from the ground up, right. And sort of built 
organizations like that and sort of seeing the, the challenges, right? And well, it is the number one challenge is always compensation, right? It's always like this sort of human setting up the relationship, setting up the structure, the, the compensation. And basically in a construct like makers, like you have this exact same challenge. You're just way worse equipped to deal with it. So the outcome is of course, even, even worse, basically. And I mean, early on with the, with the sort of the early iteration of the end game plan, one of the things I emphasized is that you basically have what I call maker core, right? You have like the protocol itself with things like the ETH vault, like sort of these basic products that maker offers. And that's where all the money is being made. And that's where all the, the value is being created, right? It's, I mean, it's all stuff that's already built and it's already running and it's there and it works. And people use it all the time and it's broadly adopted and it's very successful, right? And it's generating a lot of, of income. And then you have this like giant workforce with 130 people and a 45 million budget. And that's basically working on like other stuff that's not even related to make a call really. And it's hard to even sort of get to the bottom of what exactly are people working on. And once you sort of dig in, you see tons of really great stuff all over the place, but it's just, you know, in a very badly structured way, basically. And then what I sort of found, and I guess this is the thing that made me realize either I just accept that it can't even be done like DAOs cannot even work and just give up on the concept basically and sort of give up on, on DeFi in a sense I'll have to basically try to solve this incredible problem myself and figure out some kind of solution to this right because what happens in this state is that you start to get this like politics start to emerge right and I mean to some extent it's like the iron law of bureaucracy I was talking about earlier but there's an even worse form of that right which is you don't have a single kind of organization or like a single kind of aligned group forming, right? Where you have these like multiple factions and they begin to struggle for resources, right? And they begin to kind of like create drama essentially and like political struggles as well. So at some point it actually stops being about resources. It becomes personal even. And I started seeing the sort of the very early stages of that and also just the very clear direction and, and trajectory of it, right? And combined with sort of the the broken compensation, the broken budgeting, the sort of the, all these other major challenges where you have all, so you have these incredibly talented people and they're just sort of set up for failure, basically, because in a way they weren't even set up at all, right? They set themselves up in a completely organic process. And the reality is that doesn't work. So that's when I basically, yeah, I mean, I basically decided at some point, like, look, I can't give up on make, you know, before I give up on it, I'm going to make this sort of last attempt. And then that's what resulted in the end game plan, basically. Then, I mean, that's also where the, the end game name comes from. It's also like, as I see, this is the last attempt to try to make this kind of experiment work, like basically the DAO experiment that was started all the way back in 2014, right? With the very early projects trying to do this kind of stuff. And, you know, Maker has sort of pioneered DeFi and DAOs the whole, the whole time. And it's natural that we should also be the ones that try to pioneer it kind of actually making it stable and making it work for the long run. So that's what I decided to do in the end. And of course, just like everything else with Maker, it ended up becoming a, a bit of a bigger challenge than first expected. But on the other hand, I mean, I have, I really have this sense of like the light at the end of the tunnel and I'm willing to put in all the, the work necessary to do all this, you know, myself, basically voluntarily, right? So I'm not, I'm operating, I'm doing this completely as an individual now. Like there's no foundation anymore, right? There's no, there's no nothing basically. There's just, there's the core units, there's the community, there's 
all sorts of different people. And either it's going to, as I see it, either it will work and it will succeed or basically, well, one possibility is that Maker is just sort of gone too far and can't, can't save itself. Another possibility is that it simply cannot be done. Like the whole idea of a DAO just isn't going to fly no matter what kind of solution you try to come up with. We're going to dive into the end game pretty soon, but why spend so much time like candidly, why why do you spend so much time on MakerDAO? Like, why are you putting in so much work into the end game plan, into these other things? I'm sure you've you've been in crypto for for almost a decade. I'm sure you've you've made a lot of money. Like, it could be pretty easy to take a step back and and do whatever you want with your life. Like, why are you putting in such an effort here? Yeah, I mean, and especially considering that that's what I've always wanted, right? The whole appeal has always been you can just build it and then it will just run itself and it will be amazing, right? It will just work by itself. I mean, one thing is that DAOs have the potential to really be not only like very powerful tools, but also exactly what humanity needs now. But I think especially the power of currency, right? But currency is, I mean, it's the most ancient and most powerful tool humans ever invented, the way I sometimes like to describe it, right? And I think it exactly is needed to deal with these massive challenges that humanity is facing basically i mean there's not just the climate crisis but sort of the general kind of you know the post-truth world of broken politics and the depletion of resources and the, the overshoot and sort of overextension of of capitalism and the human population and what we really need is exactly i mean this is what bitcoin and the blockchain was created to do right it was created to deal with these kind of symptoms of a system that has grown beyond what it can handle, which is what we saw with the financial crisis, right? That's what gave birth to blockchain. And I mean, what's coming next is something like the financial crisis, but so much worse. And then something even worse will happen and it will keep happening like that until the whole thing falls apart and breaks. And as I see it, like crypto is, you know, and stable coins and DAOs and decentralized technology, that's what will allow regular people who aren't like a part of the elite that can hide in some bunker or something to have a chance to sort of survive through all this, right? And and maybe even thrive despite all the, you know, the bad things that the humans have sort of, I mean, they tend to kind of do over time, right? I feel like it's almost like a historical, maybe responsibility or something like that, right? That like we're the ones sitting here and building stuff with this technology and it could be the difference between life life or death. It could be the thing that helps reallocate capital towards the right assets. It could be the, you know, the means for someone to survive by being able to buy food when legacy institutions start falling apart. So that, I mean, that's really, like, I feel like before I kind of really start retiring, kind of, I have to do my best, basically. I can't just give up and let Maker kind of, die a slow death by itself. I'm also just too emotionally attached to it, right? I mean, I have a sense of like, it needs to be Maker that provides these solutions, right? Because that's what Maker existed to do in the first place. And it's been trying to do it for, for so many years. And so now's the time to, to finally get it done, right? Then if I put in the effort now, then I can later feel satisfied in pulling out, right? And let whatever ends up happening then happen. Honestly, yeah, makes makes a ton of sense. You've seen MakerDAO from the very beginning. You've seen it evolve. And 
it makes sense that, that you want to see it through to the extent possible. So yeah, I honestly applaud you and admire you for, for doing that. I guess moving on to the end game plan, I think there's a lot to unpack here. So I'll start with as simply as, as possible, could you explain what the end game plan is and, and what the main points are? I mean, so the end game plan is about establishing and sort of securing this maker itself as a permanent financial infrastructure that can serve the world in the future, no matter what happens. So it's about kind of basically locking down and defining the governance, making it predictable, making it reliable. And the key way to do that is to simplify it. And that's sort of the, I mean, you know, we've talked about all this, like the core units, the whole, all this sort of the insights of going through kind of maker's growth. But I think also if you look more broadly in the DeFi and DAO ecosystem, I mean, you sort of arrive at this conclusion that the problem is that you can't scale, like you can't scale these decentralized organizations beyond a certain size. So it sort of works when they're small. Once they get really big, it doesn't work anymore. More than anything else, that's like the key insight that the in-game plan builds on and uses as kind of like the core tool to actually make scalable and reliable sort of permanent equilibrium possible. So step one, in a sense, is to identify this thing I call the maker core, right? like the very basic thing that is what maker actually is with no fluff, no bloat, nothing beyond it, just exactly the kind of like the basic system and the very basic functions that makes the basic system work. And then keep it simple, cut it down to just that, and basically have that be the thing that maker governance operates. Nothing beyond that, right? And then take all the kind of the complexity, the innovation, the growth, the initiative, the experimentation, basically take all of those things. And instead of trying to do those in the core, do those in kind of like separate, basically DAOs, essentially. And that's this concept of, of what I call the meta DAO, which is this like, basically the end game plan cuts away everything, like all complexity that isn't considered make a core, which is most of what's happening right now. And then replaces all of that with this singular concept of the creation of metadows and then also basically the regulation of the metadows by the, the maker call. And then what you end up with is kind of the best of both worlds. So you have a kind of system that on one hand has a very resilient and reliable call form and function that remains the same. It never changes. It's completely immutable. It has a governance system that can control it because it's simple enough that you can sort of like I talked about earlier, right? You can't have governance that can, you ask them some open-ended question and there's no realistic way they'll be able to, to answer that. But it is possible to have decentralized governance run when the questions it's being asked are like very, follow some particular format, essentially, right? That is like very specific, like you have to operate to make a call and then you have to basically incubate and regulate the metadata. And then if you do that, then in the, you also get the upside of the growth and the scale from the metadows because you just kind of like externalize it, right? Push it into these separate small DAOs and then give them complete free reigns to basically grow through free market innovation. To make sure I, I understand, the basic idea behind the endgame plan is to greatly simplify maker governance because the core units have a ton of bloat and bureaucracy 
And as a result, there is too much, it's impossible to get anything done. And people are obsessed with getting compensated and, and as the priority. And the end game plan will simplify that by replacing the core units with these metadata type structures that are able to move and operate with a, a little bit more efficiently with a longer term strategy and vision. Is that a good general summary? Are there any major missing pieces? One thing that's important to understand is that, that I mean, most of the complexity that exists in Maker today, actually the really big problem with that complexity is that it's, it's not explicit. So it's not sort of written down or it's not, you don't really know it's even there until you observe it in action when you kind of see all the human relationships and all the human interactions and, and the way they sort of interact with each other, right? And the kind of the pinnacle of that is like the politics itself, right? The political dynamic of like, who's in alliance with who and all that kind of stuff, right? Which just is so insanely complex. And so from the perspective of something like the core units, right? So the core units still exist in the Indian plan. And in fact, there's like multiple pieces. There's also something called councils and there's also something called tribunals. And they all kind of like keep each, each other in check in a sense. So in many ways, in terms of like the explicit complexity, there's actually a lot more of that. But what it then achieves is it, it allows you to get rid of all this implicit complexity and this sort of open-ended complexity that currently exists. So it's like, you know exactly what you've got and you can kind of use game theory and sort of extrapolate from what exactly is the explicit stuff and from that work out, why is it going to work? Why is it not going to break? You know, what happens if like this role here is corrupt, for instance, right? Well, then there's this kind of a feedback loop to deal with it. In a, and in a way, it's sort of the whole system assumes that it sort of starts with, in a way, not trusting anyone, right? And basically assuming everyone's going to be selfish and everyone's going to try to extract value out of the system. And then we have to build a system in such a way that if you're trying to extract value out of it, the best way to do that is to do something useful to the system. And that's actually very similar to thinking in terms of something like KPIs. So like currently, there are discussions about KPIs and maker governance, and there's this there are like attempts at kind of like holding core units accountable for their results and so on. And by the way, I mean, there's also, there's plenty of people achieving very real results all the time, right? We have these like big real asset proposals that we've pioneered and, and it's bearing fruit. We're like finally getting some very big opportunities to go through, right? And there's also been a lot of technical development throughout all this time, right? But the output could have been so much better if the structure wasn't constantly getting in the way, right? And the only way to avoid that from happening is to basically bolt down a structure that you can sort of walk through theoretically why it will work. It feels like one of the most critical components of this new structure of the MetaDAOs will be the composition, right? Who do you see being involved in the MetaDAOs? Is it some of the core unit members? Is it new people? Like, do you anticipate... Would the core unit themselves shut down? Would only some of them close down? Like, how do you see the two interacting with each other? You're right. And what's kind of funny is that when you look at something like the endgame plan, which is really, it's like a giant equilibrium, basically. And you kind of realize that there's no single sort of critical part. They're all critical in a sense. You know, in equilibrium, you can't remove something out of it and then it will keep being in equilibrium, right? At least... That's how it should be, right? Because if you have something you can remove, then why don't you just remove it, right? 
especially when the goal is is simplicity, which is it always should be in any situation where you're designing kind of any anything that's important, right, or has a critical function. But you're completely right that like this is really one of those like absolutely critical challenges, right? And and it's also interesting because this is like this is a really good example of sort of the core logic that I think is fundamental to make it that work, right? Because so in the current, if you look at the current core units of Maker, they're basically kind of like Maker governance interacting with a company, essentially. So it's like a negotiation between Maker governance on one hand and the company on the other hand. It's something called the relationship problem. Basically, it's so incredibly difficult for a decentralized governance process, you know, of like hundreds of like random people that may or may not show up at any given time to have a coherent negotiation with a, you know, a company of professionals, right? And also there's this total mismatch of expectations, right? That if people sort of are putting their, their, I mean, basically their livelihood on the line, right? They're like signing up to work for a DAO and that's their career now, right? That's how they're going to pay for the rent and pay for the food. They're also counting on some kind of commitment on, you know, from the DAO on the other hand, right? And basically it's not a good match, basically. It's like a very tough kind of relationship to make work, right? And you, I mean, you get a lot of bad outcomes such as random budgets that make no sense, right? Where makers just wasting money because randomly people decided to vote it through. And nobody knows why. Nobody's accountable. Nobody's responsible, right? Anyway, so the way the end game plan deals with this is that it requires a kind of, I mean, I like to call it separation of powers, basically, right? That basically you want someone to kind of like be the one that directly interacts with maker governance, right? So, I mean, at some point, like a person or a company has to basically interact directly with maker governance and get some kind of budget, right? Make some kind of proposal, get some kind of budget, or get some kind of resource to, to do something, right? But then what's really important is that that entity, basically that person or group needs to be separate from then the ones that do the actual work. So you, you get some kind of check on the work that gets done, right? And that's the basic split of like the core unit is sort of sitting on maker's side, essentially, right? That's kind of like the core unit is like the basic building block of where you put a budget, essentially. But the place where you put the budget, that should not be the place where the work is done. The place where you put the budget, that should be the place where kind of the negotiation with the ones who do the work happens, right? And then the metadows, they form a kind of a free market that then, you know, can bid on doing work for the for Maker. So an example could be Maker wants to do a collateral onboarding, or maybe Maker wants to deploy a new sharded vault engine on a new L2 blockchain, right? And then a budget is set aside for that, basically like some kind of maximum budget is set aside. And then a core unit is then responsible for basically creating an RFP, right? A request for proposal where you sort of go out and say, hey, we're looking for people to build this thing with these parameters who can give us some bits, basically, who can make some proposals for, for doing this work. And then you could have multiple metadows, for instance, could bid on this, but also just companies, which is kind of the in-game worldview. That's just called an ecosystem actor. Like an ecosystem actor is just like anyone that's sort of external to either make a call or the metadows. And then they all kind of compete uh, equally, right? Then, and it's just a matter of seeing who can then provide the best proposal, basically. And then... I mean, they're the ones who then get to do the work, right? And get the budget and get paid to do it. But you also have professionals representing Maker actually holding them accountable. You don't have to have a bunch of token holders trying to 
hold them accountable in a decentralized fashion because that's in practice completely impossible. Could not agree more. I think I'm care holders and any governance token holders are not sufficiently incentivized to participate, let alone form an informed opinion on potentially pretty complex topics, which they often have no skin in the game for, right? Like die holders don't get a sane governance. And yeah, I think there's a lot to unpack there. So I guess last question on the on the meta DAO stuff, like I think a big problem with, that you're talking about with the core units is the lack of accountability, right? And a lack of someone that can check certain powers and, and check certain budgets. The meta DAO structure helps, I think, separate those powers and creates another participant class within maker governance. Like, what do you see your role in all of this? Like, do you see yourself as having to step in and, and setting some of these standards as, as forcing people to get to go down on certain budgets? Like, is that a fair way to frame it? So actually a kind of core insight is that in a DAO, you have to have token holders, holders involved in the day-to-day operations. If you don't have that, then you're always going to have the law, the iron law of bureaucracy occur. And that's kind of, that's the big difference between a DAO and a company with shareholders, basically. So in a company with shareholders, right, you really just outsource the entire execution to an executive team, right? To a CEO, basically, or to a board, and then they pick a CEO, and then the CEO sets up the company. And as a shareholder, you have no idea what the hell is actually going on. It's like a black box to you, right? And you get your information about what's going on through financial statements that are sort of carefully prepared for you to follow, right? And the reality is if they wanted to like falsify them or, you know, defraud you, you'd have absolutely no way to know that that was happening, right? Shareholders are completely unequipped to deal with corruption in a company, right? And that's because they don't have to because companies are built on legal structures and the legal structures they deal with corruption, right? Corruption is illegal, right? You know? That's the number one reason why it doesn't happen all the time. And, you know, fiduciary duty is the thing that kind of, you know, makes the whole thing work, right? Because fiduciary duty is exactly the thing that allows you as a shareholder to sort of sit back and relax and collect your dividend, basically, and count on it to work out, right? And in a DAO, that's not the case. Like in a DAO, if you sit back, you should absolutely count on 100% of that dividend getting extracted by the people that are sort of sitting in between you and the money being earned and then the money being paid out in, in a sense, right? You actually have to do the work yourself in some sense and basically look out for, at the minimum, sort of look out for, for corruption in a sense. In some sense, that's like the role of a token holder in a DAO, as I see it, right? In this kind of an, an, an equilibrium like this that, that is actually decentralized and is actually going to work. And so, okay, so... How do you do that? I mean, how is that even possible, right? Because that sounds impossible if you compare it to something like a company that's basically a black box. And that's where, like, first of all, something like the core units, right? And this whole thing of, like, what is the DAO doing? I mean, it has to be, like, a finite, fixed set of things that Maker does or any DAO does. It cannot be, like, oh, we'll do whatever. It has to be, like, some kind of, like, this is the complete global extent of what Maker does. You know, there's these, whatever, 11 things. And that's so actually that's actually how it's structured in the game plan. I mean, and, and it's all structured along the lines of what I call the scopes. So basically, like a scope is sort of a particular focus area, and it's sort of the basic unit of think of it as like the basic unit of MKR holder participation. And so each scope they have a kind of 
a voter committee meeting. So you basically have a bunch of voters holding meetings related to particular scopes. That could be a meeting related to real assets. It could be a meeting related to infrastructure and the security of the infrastructure on the oracles and so on, or the or finance, like internal finance and accounting. And then those meetings, that's where the decisions are made in a sense. That's And that's where the kind of the operational oversight occurs in a sense. So then, and the way you do that in practice is you do it through frameworks, right? So unlike in a company where you can kind of make decisions by, like the boss basically has some idea and then he says, okay, we'll do that. In a DAO, you can never like make a decision by just like deciding and then doing it. You can only ever, like it always has to be this sort of separation of powers kind of fully documented kind of approach, right? So before you make a decision, you have to basically find some kind of, you have to basically justify why you made that decision. And the way that works in the endgame plane is you, every scope has what's called a scope framework. And that scope framework is almost like a constitution for each of those things, right? So like, how do you do real assets? Well, there's like a constitution for how you do real assets, right? And whenever you make a decision around should we increase the debt ceiling for, for this thing over here? Or should we onboard this thing? Or should we whatever, right? Should we you know, let this metadata do it and this other metadata do it? Then the scope framework provides basically kind of like a, almost like a step-by-step guide for how to figure that out. And that's actually very similar to KPIs, right? That's kind of like this idea of like, how do you actually measure what's good and what's bad? What's the right thing and what's the wrong thing? And then, of course, one of the reasons why you need this is immediately obvious that even if you have this process where you have a core unit and they get to decide who, you know, they, they sit representing maker and then they determine which of the counterparties will do the work. Then what happens if they pick the nephew, right? As the one, you know, the nephew's metadata and the nephew's company gets to do the work, right? And the way you, one obvious way to, to put a check on that is to make it so they don't even really make the decision in a sense. What they actually do is they interpret a framework that's already been created that they're following. And then you can very easily see if they're doing something wrong because you can sort of, you know, like kind of retroactively have a look and see how did they come to that decision? Well, it's documented over here. Let's have a look. Okay, so this is the data and this is the framework. And if you apply the framework to the data, do you arrive at the same conclusion or is there something seriously wrong here, right? I mean, they picked the ones that clearly look the worst, why didn't they pick the best ones, right? And maybe that, and that sort of, I mean, that could be a way to, to, to figure out, okay, actually they're picking the one that benefits the nephew or something like that, right? And that's the type of, that's the basic challenge that a DAO has to constantly deal with in the long run because fiduciary duty and legal responsibility doesn't exist in a decentralized world. And then, these frameworks that sort of underpin everything of how all this stuff works, they are the ones that have to be made. Like the token holders have to sign off on those, right? The token holders have to understand them. They have to make them. They have to be able to, if necessary, manually kind of verify them and interpret them and basically assume that the entire workforce is colluding to actually defraud them in theory, right? And and the way you get around that is you really make sure that like the, the processes of the workforce and the process of the DAO are simple enough that the community itself can actually follow along and in theory even take it over in a sense, right? I mean, of course, in practice, it's very unlikely that you would have a bunch of people doing work for the DAO for free, but it should be, if they wanted to, it should be possible. 
Like you cannot have any kind of, of siloing or, or black boxing because as soon as you have that, well, it just fundamentally is incompatible with a total lack of, of legal responsibility. Bringing the really thorough explanation of, of what you see as the, the long-term end state for all this, I think something important in all of this that we haven't talked about is real-world assets. As a reminder to all listeners, RegerDAO integrated USDC as the first real-world asset in its multi-collateral DAI system, I believe in 2020, after Black Thursday. And since then, there have been many more progressively more real-worldy assets that have been integrated into the system, including, I believe there have been proposals for, for real estate, for commercial banks to come in and participate, and, and many, many, many others. So I think that's a critical component and part of the story of MakerDAO, of the endgame, of having DAI be free-floating. What is your overall opinion of real-world assets in MakerDAO? Do you think in 10 years, it should be a part of the collateral pool? Yeah, so real-world assets has always, they've always, it's always been a focus of Maker almost since the very beginning, because it was very early on we realized, yeah, look, all crypto is correlated. If you want to get something that's stable, you have to get things that are more, that are diversified, right? And then later on, I guess it finally sort of dawned on us that basically a stable coin and DeFi follows the same, I mean, obviously works in the same way as real finance, right? Just because you put it on a blockchain doesn't make it different, basically. And what that ultimately means is that you have liabilities denominated in US dollar. You also need assets denominated in the, in the US dollar, right? And if you don't have that, then you basically run into to risks. So that's why real assets have been so completely fundamental to, I mean, to scaling die, right? And, and I would say really, it's the decision to allow the USDC collateral to just explode to however many billions it needs to be. That's, I mean, one of the main secrets to DAI success, right? Because that allowed it to actually scale and get integrated in a lot of places and put us in the position we're in now where it can then be further diversified and sort of sort of dealt with, right? And I mean, so first of all, there's been this big I mean, misunderstanding or misinformation or whatever it is, right, about the Endgames plan approach to eliminating or reducing exposure to real assets, right? Because... Because I'm not, I'm not against real assets in sort of a philosophical sense. On the contrary, I, you know, I think it's extremely important and it's like a huge opportunity to to have some kind of real positive impact on the world. However, there's this very clear facts on the ground in terms of the regulatory situation for crypto is getting worse, right? And and nothing sort of showcases better than the tornado cash sanctions, but also more generally, it's sort of heralded by. Basically, the you know the total destruction of crypto's goodwill and image in the mainstream and and in the sort of the political world, right? With the, just the embarrassing failure of the last bubble, right? Where turns out crypto actually managed to produce nothing of value, right? It was all just a bunch of Ponzi schemes, and you have these like you know the most notable thing that happened was the the collapse of all these big projects and the the destruction of retail wealth, right? 
And then if you look at something like Maker, who was actually trying to do something and be like, look, we're going to show the world. DeFi can do something real. We can do something good, right? We're going to do clean money. And we totally failed to achieve anything, right? We were completely paralyzed by our own governance. I mean, and I think that's a big shame because I think it, it could have gone differently and, and the regulatory situation could have been better if instead of having a bunch of Ponzi schemes and crashes, we would instead have had some, you know, exciting you know, examples of, of real assets and, and successful scaling and deployment of giant solar farms or something that would become a, that would, you know, give some kind of tangible reason for regular people to think that crypto isn't just a scam, right? But unfortunately, that, that didn't occur, basically. But it's still a possibility that can be done. Like, I think basically my perspective is that at this point, Maker has to absolutely prepare for, for the worst in terms of what ends up happening with the regulation of crypto and stable coins and, and real assets. But that doesn't mean that in the short run, we should deviate from the plan of trying to showcase that DeFi can do real good in the real world. In fact, we should double down on that, right? Free floating die and limiting real assets. That's basically a contingency plan, right? I mean, that's what we do if we can't, if it's clear that you know, maker like the long-term regulatory stance will be that crypto and DeFi will will have to be treated like a bank, right? It'll have to follow the same regulation as any other financial institution, which what we need to basically kind of argue successfully is that something like maker isn't a bank or isn't a financial institution. It's open source software, right? It's more like an infrastructure. It's like Linux. It's not JP Morgan, right? And if we can do that successfully, then, you know, the amount of good that can be done with renewable assets is really, you know, incredible and, and almost limitless, I think. And it could really totally change how finance works and, and you know, have an actual very significant impact on the world, I believe. But the other major challenge we have to deal with is then, like, I mean, well, because we couldn't actually even make it work internally yet, right? We failed because our governance kind of wasn't ready just yet. And the challenge of renewable assets and especially how renewable assets kind of brings with it a kind of different culture from the other cultures that exist in crypto and how those interactions are very destructive and cause a lot of trouble basically with the meta, as I call it. And that's also one of the main things that got me started on Endgame Plan because I just realized that, I mean, I, I realized that it turns out that Maker has a lot of drama and a lot of trouble, a lot of politics, but it was very clear that there was way, way more of that every time something related to real assets. So like real assets became a kind of a magnet for this that sort of amplified this kind of stuff. And that's basically, I mean, that's because of, you have like a meta of like culture, essentially. It's because the kind of people you need to do real assets in a DAO, they're completely different than the kind of people you need to do smart contracts. And so... For those groups to work together, I mean, that's basically very hard because they don't have the same type of culture. I mean, and it's not just even culture. It's also even something like compensation. And it's also sort of the game theory of how, how people even interact. And all of that stuff together, that's what I call the meta. And the solution is they simply can't be, like you can't have them create a single aligned meta. You have to have multiple separate metas. And that's, you know, that's the sort of the basic idea for the metadata, right? That a perfect example of what they're useful for is that instead of trying to integrate and 
combine people that do real world assets and have that very specific skill set and compensation models and structures and sort of uh, professional conduct and so on with people that have something completely opposite that are like cypherpunks and smart contract developers or backend developers, whatever, you can instead create multiple different DAOs and each of them can choose what they want to be, right? So there's a type of metadata called a protector and that's sort of a metadata class. So that's sort of the, the actual separate specialization of metadata. So basically you have some that focus on real assets and then they can develop unique metas that is compatible with that and that's compatible with having the right people working on it. And then you can have others that focus on like DeFi innovation and decentralized experiments and so on, right? And these are different types of people. But on top of that, you even have, so, I mean, this was especially apparent with real assets. You even have, even in the same kind of area of expertise, right? Something on real assets, you will even have multiple groups that will struggle over the control of that particular thing. So that's kind of, we've had a kind of, ongoing struggle around who controls real assets in Maker for a very long time. And the solution is, well, how about instead of having a single kind of hill everyone's trying to control, what if you just have multiple of them? So you can have multiple metadows and then they can all run real assets. And then from the Maker core side, you don't have Maker governance sit there and try to make up its mind around some particular legal structure in Delaware or something, whether it's a viable structure or not, or whether the, the, the risk is priced correctly or something. Because it's just totally impossible to try to let, you know, a very slow and, and very large governance community figure out some like very specialized question like that, right? Instead, you can have maker governance simply evaluate the performance of, you know, multiple of these metadows. And then be like, okay, well, this metadata here, they, they gave the best results. So they will get most of the debt ceiling, right? And then these over here, they did not as good. So they'll get a smaller amount, but we'll still get them some to basically keep having it diversified because the key is to have that, you know, almost like an evolutionary process, right? Where we basically see, we see what results we get and then we adjust based on the results, right? And keep encouraging the stuff that's showing good results. And you can apply that same logic to, to really anything. Real-world assets are just particularly well-suited for it, even in the short run. So basically, real-world assets, very complex issue. It's not black and white. You're not strictly for or against it, but it needs to be done in a manner that's sustainable, in a manner that's long-term, and in a way that, yeah, it, it just can't, it can't be captured. The growth of real-world assets can't result in, like, maker being captured by a particular person or entity or put it at risk legally. Yeah. And then what's kind of uh, interesting about maker is that, I mean, there's definitely some people in the maker community that have been attracted over the years to the kind of, you know, makers always had to kind of identify itself as very regulation friendly and very real asset friendly and kind of like push back against what I'll call decentralization purists, in a sense. And that's not really been because Maker was a project that was sort of all about centralization, all about legal this or legal that. Because, I mean, Maker's always been about creating a decentralized stablecoin. But because of, of the ideology of crypto, that's what Maker kind of found itself in over time, right? It, it sort of became defined by, you know, the sort of the opposite thing, which was this total decentralization purity. 
And what's happened then, interestingly, is that there's this like new generation of community members in Maker who actually think that Maker should really just become a bank. Like you should just really just like completely turn it into a bank. Why mess around with this DAO stuff? Why not just turn it into a bank? But what's, what's interesting is the technology itself, like this, the protocol itself is engineered in such a way that that is physically impossible. There's no possible way to actually make the maker protocol compliant and sort of backdoor it and allow the workforce to do KYC on who gets to use it or something like that. It's actually impossible. Like it cannot even be done with, you know, 100% of the MKR, like a super majority vote or root access or whatever. It's impossible. Yeah, totally makes sense. I guess with the, like going back to the proposal to have DAI be free floating, like if governance wasn't a thing, if you could just like change MakerDAO on a whim, would you say like starting today, MakerDAO should put the plan in place to transition DAI to be free floating? Or is it more, hey, like let's see how the regulation develops, but we need to have a plan in place to begin the transition if the signs continue to go down the current path, which is like protocols will get more and more regulated, front ends will get more and more filtered. And is it more of a contingency plan or is it like a, a path that the protocol needs to commit to? So one thing is you can look at the regulatory signs today and it's clear that they point in a certain direction. But I mean, I also believe that there are sort of larger factors at play in that the world itself, the sort of the economic system itself, the geopolitical system itself is unstable. and we are in for very bad times, basically, as a, as a species, right? We're going to have the climate crisis, and then we're going to have a resource crisis, and we're going to have, you know, wars of, of scarcity, right? Where, where you basically have struggle for the remaining resources. And the way that all of that kind of stuff will actually impact us in our everyday lives, like the way we really feel that impact isn't going to be so much the sort of the first order of like, drought or something. But the number one impact that I expect, basically, because this is historically, you know, what happens if you look at sort of human history is, you know, like basically dictatorship and fascism and, and sort of political instability and deterioration, basically. So, I mean, if you basically assume that economic decline and global decline and sort of, you know, climate disaster is guaranteed at this point which of course i mean it isn't physically guaranteed but if you look at kind of the the political reality then it is unavoidable right and and you have this sort of the most on the climate change front you know you have these like the most ambitious political pledges will drive the world to a almost a three degree celsius increase in, in heating which is you know a collapse it's like a calamity but it's just happening anyway because everything's just running kind of an autopilot and, and ultimately the thing that guides us is capitalism, right? So, so that's what's going to happen. Basically. And in that context, I just, I think it's like, you really have to assume that at, at a certain point that will impact how governments function. And, you know, we can't, we cannot assume any Western government will remain democratic or safe or fair or, you know, protecting financial freedom or, or property rights or any of that stuff, right? So I really think that it's very likely 
to happen and it, it should be expected and maker of all projects and sort of die of all currencies is exactly the thing that should be prepared for this, right? Like there are other products out there, there are other like financial products, there are other currencies out there. They're not the ones that necessarily have to prepare for this. They could go and say, okay, yeah, if you're holding whatever the US dollar, you're making a bet on the US, you know, staying in its prime, not falling apart. But a decentralized stablecoin and, and DAI is especially, right? That was this, I mean, it's a sort of a descendant of, of Bitcoin, right? It's designed exactly to hedge against this kind of risk. It's meant to be an alternative to a broken system, right? So I absolutely think that being able to fully survive sort of the global authoritarianism and, and a complete kind of crackdown and ban on crypto and, you know, the worst case scenario that you can possibly imagine, that's what Maker eventually has to prepare for. And there's basically two dimensions to that, right? So the one really obvious one is real assets because those are, that's collateral in a system you can just, that can just be seized, right? So if you have more real assets, then you're just more vulnerable to authoritarianism. And it's also a question of how concentrated they are. So it's also, you can also diversify real assets, right? And, and, uh, and basically be more protected. For that, I think it's a matter, I mean, that's basically this, that's this question of, well, you could limit real assets, but the cost of limiting real assets is to accept that you will then not necessarily be able to keep the pick to $1. You may have to free float die. And then what's kind of funny is that actually, in a way, when we talk about free floating die, actually, technically, it's still pegged to the dollar. It's just that it would, so it's not that it will start randomly kind of fluctuating in value it's rather that it would go down at a sort of predictable negative interest rate and the way you would express that negative interest rate is through a decrease in the price of die over time it will free float but it will free float at a very predictable rate where it falls over time in value relative to the dollar as if you had you know you had negative rates in the bank and you put your bank in the bank account and then after a year you've lost one percent or something like that right and that's the kind of the cost of then being able to, to directly limit the exposure to real assets. And then the worst thing that could possibly happen if there is this kind of physical crackdown where authorities try to seize the collateral wherever they can. And the kind of assumption based, I mean, following the tornado cash sanctions is that something like using national security emergency powers is a very strong weapon, right? And, and that's the kind of thing that we should expect governments to do when they, if they want to decide to crack down on crypto, right? So Maker has to basically be ready to, first of all, do everything it possibly can to prevent that from happening in the first place by doing things like clean money, by, you know, doing PR, by doing lobbying, outreach, education, all that stuff, right? All DAOs and all crypto projects and all companies in the crypto space has to work together to keep doing that because of course it's already happening. But then also be ready, like Maker has to be ready to, and have a kind of an, an actual plan, not just sort of an idea of like, oh, we'll just make it up as we go, right? But instead like a completely clear and, and completely understood sequence of what exactly do we do if we we need to limit our exposure to real assets that can be seized, right? But then there's, there's also another component, which is stuff like front ends, and the workforce and infrastructure such as oracles, like those things are other weak spots that can potentially be targeted, right? And actually, I mean, as many people have pointed out endlessly since all of this kind of misunderstanding around what's actually going to happen with endgame plan and free-floating die, right? 
is that, look, even if you have a 100% decentralized collateral, they can just go and arrest all the developers or something, right? And so that's why it's, in many ways, it's even more important because you can do this no matter what. This is not a trade-off. This is like, a, this is just something you have to do. Pay the price and sort of get it done. You can build actually decentralized front-ends, right? And make that be what people use instead of centralized front-ends. And that has to happen. That's the only way you achieve resilience in the long run. If you get that done and just figure it out and get it done. Right? And same thing for the oracles. You have to get decentralized oracles. That could mean purely on-chain oracles. It could also mean running nodes in a way that is hidden and diversified and you know made resilient, like physically resilient. And then there's even the possibility that the workforce itself of a DAO in the long run will have to be fully anonymous because it could very well be that in the long run, governments, they will simply declare that like anytime there's a person they can identify working on a project in any shape or form, then it's a company, right? It's a partnership. There's somebody working while well, they're part of the partnership and they're now liable for whatever's happening, right? So in that kind of extreme situation, you have to develop frameworks and methods that can handle a workforce being fully anonymous with nobody being identifiable. And basically a part of that means if you happen to be able to identify someone, then they cannot work on the DAO anymore because, I mean, not really for the DAO's sake, actually, but for their own sake, because it, it puts them at risk potentially, right? If that means they become liable for whatever imaginary or real problems a, a government might have with it. Certainly an interesting point about <clears throat> anonymity and, and developers. And yeah, I mean, I, I don't disagree. I think like the main value prop of, of a public blockchain is its ability to resist influence from third party centralized actors, i.e. the original inspiration for, for Bitcoin was resisting central bank influence and government influence and, and all of that. So if developers of protocol can be influenced and, and touched, then then it's it does not bode well. So certainly agree with with that point. My last question on the end game plan, like where do you think sit now? I know you've governance has debated it for for many months. Like, do you expect? Are you putting this on chain? Where does it stand? Like, what does the next year look like here for what you're working on? Yeah, so I've actually recently made the actual proposals to do what I call the approval. So basically, either get a rejection or get like a preliminary go-ahead by the maker governance decision-making process. And so we'll go for a vote in October. And then before then, I'm going to you know spend a bunch of time explaining it and trying to, to break it down with sort of easy-to-understand you know, text and, and diagrams and all stuff. So that's basically, that's what I'm spending all my time on now. Yeah, and I've literally, I've worked on it, I mean, almost for a year at this point. And it's really been iterated on so incredibly many times, right? With top, like, it's kind of interesting because the way that it's been created, it's just been me all by myself. But then all these like random volunteers from the community, sort of on and off, various people. I guess it's been maybe a group, of, I guess I would say, 25 to 30 people or so that sort of all collaborated on it. But with me kind of like me sort of doing all the heavy lifting, right. And then the community providing feedback and coming with the design ideas and especially helping with reducing the complexity. And it's, it reached the point where it was like, it wasn't really changing anymore. It was kind of, it had reached a kind of natural end state. It's sort of natural final form. 
And then the contradiction and the kind of paralysis in the workforce is only getting worse, basically, and, and sort of kept it. it. So it is, now is basically the time because the status quo could not continue any longer at this point. Funny enough, because like I said, real assets was a major thing of what started it all, right? And then we've recently just had this like real asset conflict and kind of breakdown. Once again, this is not even the first time we've had that with real assets. So that means that it's actually the perfect time to try to begin this process of, of then, you know, accepting that it, the way it's currently being done simply doesn't work. It has to be, it cannot be a single sort of monolithic thing. It has to be split up into multiple separate redundant processes and then trying to see if we can make that work for, for real assets. That just meant that, that now, is, now is the time. And yeah, it will be exciting to see how it goes because that's, I mean, of course, I'll be voting for it. And I'm, I'm one of the, the, well, I'm not actually sure if I'm the biggest whale or if there's, I'm the second biggest whale in the ecosystem, but I'm definitely one of the big voters. And then it's mainly just a bunch of, I mean, it's mainly a bunch of institutions that hold like the really large voting power. And the big question is how they will, how they will vote on this. And it's not really, it's not guaranteed yet, but I'm, I'm of course doing my part to try to convince I mean, both the big voters, but also the broader community, because that's basically, that's what the, you know, the institutions, they basically listen to the community when they try to decide if and how they should participate in governance. Yep. Agreed with all that and excited to see this go to a formal proposal and definitely one to, to keep an eye on. I think it will have important implications for not just MakerDAO, but everything else in crypto. My very last question on this podcast, I've noticed you've spent a lot of time on Lido. You've talked a lot about it, you've written about it, and you've actually included a small portion in the endgame plan, which is completely optional, but basically includes an MKR LDO swap because of a strong belief that Lido is going to succeed and it will be a critical long-term component of Ethereum. So it's good for MakerDAO to, to have a stake in this protocol. But just curious, like, why are you so bullish on Lido and yeah, like, just why are you so bullish on it? Yeah, in fact, it's not really that I'm so bullish on Lido. It's actually that I'm so bullish on Ethereum. I mean, it wasn't always the case, but I guess it's been sort of a round trip. So originally I was very much an Ethereum maximalist and thought that Maker's fate was like completely linked with and, you know, and intertwined with Ethereum. And then later I sort of dabbled in multi-chain heresy, but now I've kind of come back to the light and realize that, I mean, you can, well, it's not, I mean, in theory, it doesn't have to be Ethereum, but the reality is you can really only have one L1 and there's going to be the single dominant L1 as I see it, right? And it's, and understanding that is completely essential to understanding how to create a very resilient decentralized stablecoin that can weather whatever storm is, is going to come. And then in the, I mean, because staking is not, I mean, liquid staking isn't natively built into Ethereum, then one of the absolutely most critical products for Ethereum is then the liquid staking sort of second layer or whatever you call them, liquid staking protocols built on top of Ethereum, basically. And then Lido happens to be the first one and the biggest, and it's kind of reached this dominant, almost monopoly status. That's actually not ideal in the long run, of course. On the other hand, Lido is like, I mean, I think it's a very very well-run product and protocol that 
ultimately, I believe, is it's taking this approach that you can compare to, to Maker and, and scaling through USDC of first focusing on efficiency so it could reach a very large scale and then implement, you know, step-by-step uh, very strong decentralization and censorship resistance. And so the thing is that like the future of DeFi and, and the sort of the, the success of DeFi protocols will really be determined by how much staked ETH they can get under control. That's really, in the past, maker success has always been built on the amount of ETH that was locked in the protocol and that was backing DAI because that's sort of the source of the income for the protocol and it's also the source of the decentralization for the protocol. But in the future, it will be not just, it will not be ETH, it will be staked ETH because if you just have sort of plain vanilla ETH, you are getting debased constantly. The way to view staking something like ETH and an L1 is not to think of it as a way to earn a yield, but rather than a way to avoid getting inflated, which is a really good thing because having a currency, like having an asset that is not inflationary in any sense, that's of course very valuable. And on top of that, of course, there's, you know, there's fees for the Ethereum network, right? Well, very significant, there's even MEV. And all of that combat together, that's, it's the perfect collateral. Like there's nothing better than the dominant L1 that's being fully staked and fully sort of optimized economically. So because that's so important, then the entire in-game plan sort of builds around it. And it even involves Maker launching like a new sort of flagship product called EtherDAI, which is basically like, it's like a, it's like a synthetic ETH. It's a stable coin pegged to ETH rather than pegged to the dollar. And the reason why you want something like that is because you can back that with staked ETH, but diversify the collateral and, and also, yeah, actually peg it one-to-one. But initially, because Lido staked ETH is a dominant staked ETH solution, it's the only solution that has bootstrap liquidity. That means that the whole plan revolves around that, right? Like the flagship product, the new flagship product that everything is, is sort of built on top of is completely built on, on light of state ETH because that's like the best thing to build on top of right now. And then in that context, because Maker then is doing so much like tokenomics, it's launching metadials, it's yield farming tokens to people that, that hold this, right? It's basically providing tons of adoption for Lido. Then it obviously makes a lot of sense for Maker to also, you know, have a part of that upside by holding actual Lido tokens. And then I'm, I was a seed investor in Lido, so I have a ton of them. That basically motivated me to make what's ultimately kind of a highly beneficial deal for Maker, right? Where I provide a big discount in the interest of empowering Maker further by, by making sort of the, the economic dynamics really go full circle because Maker will have exposure to the upside of Lido. And then also so that I can just get more APR for myself because I'm very, like, I'm not just, I don't just want the in-game plan to pass I also want to make sure it keeps being in effect until it can really ossify and really it becomes impossible for it to change. And then the final piece of the puzzle is that a part of the in-game plan is not just offering state ETH as a product, right? But it's also accumulating state ETH and the mega protocol itself actually generating DAI using its own decentralized collateral. And then what's really useful is that the Lido token can also be used as decentralized collateral like that. So it would, it would give the Maker Protocol a higher sort of pool of decentralized capital they can use to begin generating decentralized DAI. Makes a ton of sense. And yeah, certainly agree. It would be good for MakerDAO to amass state ETH and 
especially since Lido is is throwing around ideas and plans to implement dual governance with STE having certain rights in Lido. So yeah, the next podcast is actually with some of the, the Lido team about this topic specifically, among other things. So yeah, they're definitely a worthwhile partner for MakerDAO long-term. So yeah, makes sense. Yeah, I really can't tell you how envious I am of Lido because of the complexity of what that protocol needs to do is just so deliciously simple. You know, it's just maintain nodes, run the staking, and you're golden, right? You're good to go. That's it. Don't do anything more. Keep it simple, and you have an incredibly valuable protocol. And then there's no regulatory. All that stuff is like, you know, it's incomparable to all the insane headaches you have to deal with when you're doing kind of complex DeFi. So that's another thing of why I think the Lido token is so amazing. That it's like, it has a business model that makes sense and it doesn't have that crazy regulatory uncertainty that exists with almost all other tokens that aren't ETH. Yeah, makes a ton of sense. And I guess very last question, like how do you feel about other L1s? And, and I think you've made your opinion very clear in Ethereum, but like there's a lot of EVM compatible chains out there. There's a lot of projects that... MakerDAO could presumably port over and, and offer something available on other chains. I think otherwise there's going to be a lot of projects that, I mean, there are a lot of other, other projects just copying the, the model and, and launching on these other chains. And like, how do you feel about that? Should MakerDAO as a protocol have a plan? I mean, I believe that it's, um, I guess you can't, maybe you can't say proven, but I believe that you can't do secure decentralized bridges. I actually view it as like a dead end. I mean, there's a possibility that you will have another L1 surpassing ETH somehow and sort of replacing it as the dominant blockchain. But I mean, I think that's increasingly unlikely. And sooner or later, ETH is going to flip Bitcoin. And then when that happens, I think it's impossible. I think it's locked in at that point. I mean, I would say it already is now. And Maker certainly, I don't think, could possibly bet on anything differently. I mean, Maker is best off simply assuming... ETH will always be sort of the incumbent dominant L1 and then throw all its weight behind trying to keep it that way, right? And, and grow it further and help it try to reach that position of, of being able to flip Bitcoin. And that's a little bit actually also part of the end game plan, right? It's really about like fully committing Maker and like all the kind of the, the, the financial muscle available in Maker just towards understanding that the fate of, of Maker and Ethereum are, are connected. Awesome. I think that's a, a great note to end on. Rune, thanks so much for, for taking the time. I think it was very helpful for everyone that's listening to hear your journey with MakerDAO over the years and why you are putting in so much time and effort into the end game plan. I'm very excited to see it go to a vote, to see it potentially in action. And I think you've shared a lot of lessons and takeaways, which are valuable lessons for other founders building protocols. Like these are all challenges that any protocol with, with some level of complexity will, will encounter if they're trying to decentralize and if they're trying to, to build a sustainable protocol. So yeah, thanks for sharing some of your lessons and takeaways. It's great having you on. Thanks a lot.